Hello there, listener, and welcome to the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. I'm your host, Nico Vreke, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Samuel Webster-Harris. And today we are discussing The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups, written by Daniel or Daniel Coyle. Sam, give us a quote. Okay, favorite quote coming up. Give a good idea to a mediocre team and they'll find a way to screw it up. Give a mediocre idea to a good team and they'll find a way to make it better. Beautiful. So in The Culture Code, Daniel Coyle goes inside some of the world's most successful organizations, including Pixar, the San Antonio Spurs, and the USA Navy SEALs, and reveals what makes them tick. He demystifies the culture building process by identifying three key skills that generate cohesion and cooperation and explains how diverse groups learn to function with one single mind. If you would ask me to summarize this book in one sentence, it is how can you ensure that a group or the group dynamics become one plus one equals three? This whole story about synergy, right? Where the whole is more than the sum of the parts. That's essentially what we're talking about here. And yeah, go faster together and alone. Yeah. Is the opposite of what people normally say, but actually when do it correctly, it's true. The other side being like just learning how to lead in a way that gets the most out of others and being vulnerable and inviting the necessities for good teamwork as well. But there's quite a few different ways to dissect it, which I guess the book goes into. Hence, there's a whole book and not just a very short blog. I'd love to start with a small, short personal anecdote that puts the book into context or gives an example of why this is an important way of thinking. And so a few months ago, a very good friend of mine who was really into games, like all types of games, board games, computer games, he had his 30th birthday party and he organized a competition. And so there were like different teams and they had to like all do these little competitions like puzzle solving, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the competitions was touchable. So you had two larger teams. I would say each team had like six to eight people and were playing dodgeball. And, you know, there were two team captains and the team captains one by one could choose the people to join their team. And so I was one of the team captains and I was allowed to go second. And so of the, let's say, 16 people that were there that I could choose from, there were maybe six girls. I ended up picking like four girls in my team and the other team had two girls. It was very clear that the other team who had more guys than girls, they were confident that they were going to win just because dodgeball is a game about how fast can you throw a ball and how good are you at dodging. And we gathered our team and we discussed strategy. And while the guys were just like throwing the ball to each other because they were so confident that they were going to win, our team actually ended up winning that game. And it was just because we thought about how we're going to work together and work efficiently. And we kind of felt like the underdogs and we ended up winning in the end, which was, I can tell you now, extremely satisfying. Their smug faces about their certainty they were going to win. Feels so good. I'm really proud of you. Thank you. I was proud of myself as well. Anyways, let's talk about the three main ways in which you can create a productive culture. Is productive the good word? Yes. I think productive, trusting, healthy culture, <laughs> opposite of toxic, <laughs> non-toxic. Well, there was another quote that I quite liked, which is, vulnerability doesn't come after trust, it precedes it. Leaping into the unknown when done alongside others causes a solid ground of trust to materialize beneath our feet. And I think as leaders, you think that you're supposed to have all the answers and that makes things a bit autocratic. Whereas if you actually encourage others to come up with answers for you and listen to them 
and show your vulnerability that you might not know everything. You can actually encourage like a lot of input that wouldn't be available to other teams by just saying that you're seeking the best thing and there's no mistakes, etc. He's got like a few stories in the book. One that I remember was the story of this plane where they lose one of their engines and the other engines being kind of crap. There's these two pilots and they can't even do all the different things with the controls because the controls aren't working properly or something. I think a guy who was a pilot trainer was on the plane and realizes the plane is really fucked and tells the air hostess that like he could maybe go and help as well. And it ends up with his three guys in the cockpit. They show you the transcript of the cockpit and the pilot at some point is being like, so how are we going to deal with the landing gear? Has anyone got any ideas? And he's making it very obvious that he's happy for anyone to help. And they all like weigh in. They manage to land this plane. And then in the weeks afterwards, they put 20 or 30 crews in the same scenario and like nearly all of them end up crashing and everyone died. And it makes the point that you shouldn't necessarily always know best to get effectively through a sticky situation. All help is good help. Doing it in a way that you can communicate is important. And that was a nice story because there is lots of potential for people to die at hand and you hear how it works. The learning here, and that's one key characteristic of fictive groups or successful groups is that they allow themselves to be vulnerable in the group. This makes a ton of sense, right? I've been in situations where there's someone I have a little distrust or a negative bias towards. And the moment they show vulnerability, the way I look at them fundamentally changes. And suddenly, like, I really like them or feel like this need to care for them and help them. And I think I've said this before on this podcast, I personally struggle with allowing myself to be vulnerable. It's literally like one of my main weaknesses because, you know, allowing yourself to be vulnerable is a very effective way to instill trust because the moment you're vulnerable towards someone, you essentially display a trust. And it's almost like where dogs, if they play, the dog that's losing goes lie on their back and shows their belly because that's their most vulnerable part. And that's then when the fighting stops. And so something similar is happening when you allow yourself within the team to be vulnerable. Essentially, vulnerability leads to trust, leads to better working together because you trust each other. And if you don't allow people within the organization to be vulnerable towards each other, then it's going to be way harder to build trust and it's going to be way harder to work together effectively because there's no trust. Definitely. I think it forces cooperation because of normally if you're just there to show how good you are you're not necessarily working with others and it doesn't create the feeling of team whereas if it's vulnerability it's like okay you're here to help me it just very much actually creates the feeling of being on a team whether it's just two of you or 20 of you i think it's super important yes and i think one of the main lessons here also is that it's the leader's responsibility to start the cycle of vulnerability followed by trust many of the examples that the author raises when he's making this point, he gave the pilot saying like, how are we going to do this? While theoretically, he's supposed to be the one who knows because he's the main pilot, right? But by asking a question, admits that he doesn't know the answer and he needs help. And that makes it so that there's this barrier that suddenly falls away and, and anyone and everyone can allow themselves to be vulnerable. And so I think a very strong leader dares to admit that they don't know everything, that they're unsure about things and generally allows him or herself to be vulnerable towards the people that they work with. The second one is actually one that precedes this vulnerability and trust part, but because I had this plan in my head, and boom, you went in between because you took my step two instead of my step one, but that's not a problem at all. You see that Sam and I, we sink deeply before we do these recordings. Anyway, so everything starts with safety. 
safety means that you feel like you're part of the organization and you're sure that you belong. And this is something that I think is really important and I think gets overlooked quite a lot today because very successful companies often say that they're a team, not a family, meaning that if you're not performing well enough, we're going to kick you out. And so the case that this book makes is actually you should be a family because what happens in a family? I have three sisters and I've had so many arguments with my three sisters, like you can't even imagine, obviously, because I'm their big brother, right? That's how these dynamics go. That said, it doesn't matter how many arguments I've had. Whenever I see them, I'm going to hug them and I'm going to love them to death. They're my sisters and I'm going to do anything for them. And so that's being a family. That's how families work. And I think that principle is something that not too many organizations, I feel personally, have where it's so much performance focused. And the moment that people are not sure that they belong in an organization, it's harder to let yourself be vulnerable, right? In step number two, if you're not sure that you belong, it's going to be hard for you to admit that you don't know something because if you don't know it, then maybe you don't belong. And so a successful organization does a few things. One, it's very strict in taking on new members because you can't be a family and work effectively if you let everyone in because in the end, you need people that perform, if that makes sense. So you hire people that fit and you make them feel like they really belong and they're in a safe space. That way you can allow them to be vulnerable and to open up. From that point, you really have a strong trust within the organization. Did that all make sense? That definitely makes sense. And it's a bit of a precursor to being able to be vulnerable. And then things like safety means that you can ask stupid questions and not feel threatened by doing that. And those are the questions that usually 90% of other people are also thinking and uh, the things that you really need in a team. And you're willing to admit your mistakes when you're fucked up, which rather than like covering them up, which leads to the things like the VW scandal with the missions and all these things where people are just trying to make themselves look good and shove things under the rug. You get massive problems in a company if people don't feel safe and stuff. One personal example, I used to be a consultant in a big bank. And so we were part of their innovation team and we were supposed to build with rapid iterations innovative products that they could potentially then start building out and offer to their broader customer base. I was a developer and I was still very junior. And so I felt very insecure about whether I belonged there because actually they were paying me good money because they were a bank and they have money. I was actually feeling very insecure about whether I belonged. I had imposter syndrome. And so because I had imposter syndrome, I really struggled admitting that one, I didn't know something or didn't have the answer or didn't know how to do something. And I think a willingness for my part to admit that would have probably made me way more effective within that organization. But because I didn't really feel safe because as a consultant, they can like with one month notice kick you out and I didn't want to get kicked out. It just doesn't really make you feel like really belong and you're safe. Glad that you've learned from these things. It's always nice to look back and um, see that you've learned these things in your life, which I think is the general marks of a book is when you make it makes you understand things that have happened in your past and be like, oh yeah, I did know that. I just hadn't worked it out and stuff. So that's cool. Do we go for the number three? So the final key to organizational success, as the author calls it, roadmap your story. It's not about nice sounding value statements. It's about flooding the zone with vivid narratives that work like GPS signals, guiding your group towards its goal. And so in practice, what this means is that you don't have this ephemeral goal that you chase towards or like this mission statement that everyone's supposed to believe in. 
where you are as an organization in the physical space should reflect what you stand for. For example, I work in the games industry. And so if you look at the offices of people within the games industry, they're like nothing you've ever seen because they're full with like comics and these plastic toys of comic book characters and like Dungeons and Dragons characters. And it just really reflects who the team is and what they are and everyone can really be themselves. And it is really important to constantly remind everyone that they're a team, that they belong together. And essentially with lots of small inputs, reinforce points one and two, which are one, you're safe here. And two, you can be vulnerable here. I guess like the overall thing we get is basically establishing a purpose that you're talking about and it kind of transcends just like a mission statement. It's like, okay, why are we getting up to go and work here? And what is the point of the work that I'm doing that's going to require vulnerability to actually achieve this thing that is greater than just myself? Two learnings there are one, as a leader, you should constantly instill the groups and the teams and the organization's values in your team, but also be an example of that. You know, a few of the examples that the book makes about the coaches of the San Antonio Spurs, essentially they never had a Michael Jordan or like one of these superstar players in football. You would have Messi or someone else. And so essentially they were a team of very talented individual without a real rock star, but still they performed way better than they had the right to given the individual talents of their members. And one of the reasons for that was the coach, every time they had an interaction, he would allow himself and his team to be vulnerable. He would talk openly. He would allow everyone to share their insecurities and their doubts. The final point that the book tries to make is that you really have to live your principles and it's not a one-off thing and it's a thing that you have to constantly do. And so if I'm ever a leader that has to hold meetings on a regular basis, one principle I think I would try to take away is if you can start as a leader, every meeting that you do with one way of allowing yourself to be vulnerable, I think those meetings will go significantly better than otherwise. On the general concept of establishing a purpose and then also encouraging the right behaviors, there's six points that he makes and a different story from a different basketball team that I just read in Atomic Habits, I think really helps make the last point. He says, for establishing purpose, you should try and, number one, rank your priorities and actually make it obvious what is the most important thing to the company, then be clearer than you would expect on what you need to be as a company. So it's not just like, say your mission statement once a year at a conference, it's like literally every meeting have something that sort of actually, by the way, this is what we're doing because it just doesn't feel real if it's just like a thing that you talk about once, as if it's like, this is the point of us doing it, you know, and this is why the Marines and things are constantly on about who it is that they are. So number three, decide on where you will aim for proficiency and for like creativity. So where you're going to be like optimal performance or where you're going to be like step back, let's just like talk with the R side of our brain and just see what comes out to make the meetings work in the right ways. Number four, embrace catchphrases, which can sound kind of bad but actually is really like a nice part of culture when you sort of have things that you understand in a way that other people don't like your own internal language and just makes it very easy to start thinking in sync with each other then number five measure what matters because there's a lot of bad things that you can measure that force you to think in the wrong ways and there's things that are really good that you can measure that really deliver the results that you're looking for which leads into the final one of focus on bar setting behaviors It's not just having like a long-term goal, but things that you can see every day and every week that people are doing that really match the measurements that you're looking for. 
there's a really good story from a different basketball team. And I think they had Magic Johnson on the team. I think they'd lost a few years in a row and they got a new coach in. And they did have the best team on paper, but they just kept on losing. The coach came in and he went through every player's history over the past sort of few things of like everything they did. And then like also across the whole rest of the NBA and not only the things that you normally score on like the, you know, you have like those fantasy leagues of how good a player is, even have a defender and stuff, but he kind of built his own scoring system for the entire team. Their goal was to just try and do 1% better each like month or each season on their overall score. And it would just involve things that normally wouldn't get scored, like just sort of jumping for a ball that like they're probably not going to get. And just like small things that just overall, if the team all push towards these things, it's going to make them more likely. But on any specific moment, you're like, it probably doesn't matter. And just like measuring all those things and then giving people a score that like they felt personally responsible to just slightly improve, really bring the team up. And they won the NBA like two years in a row, which had like never been done in like 20 years. I don't know my statistics. Either way, radically changed the team just by measuring small behaviors that people weren't measuring before uh, and really gave them an edge. So bar setting behaviors and measuring what matters created a whole vulnerability on the team so cool i think a good summary on everything there and now discussions yes so sam if you had read this 20 years ago tell me where'd you be now ceo of facebook boom if i'd read this 20 years ago it wouldn't have made that much sense to me i'd have been like yeah sure this makes sense and i would have just like moved on with my life but in terms of if i had like really taken those principles to my core i think my first business would have gone a bit better and i would have learned a bit more on like how to get the team to do everything that i wanted i also think other things that i went and did so you spoke about your story uh, for example when you were working in my sort of first job a motion ai company i ended up feeling like i was in competition with a girl that came into lead sales and like it just didn't really create a useful behavior for either of us and things like i would have noticed and i think that company could have done better and i could have maybe enjoyed the job that I was doing better if I'd sort of noticed what was happening <laughs> and addressed it in a better way. For example, so I think I would have just been a bit happier and to created a bit more of a sense of purpose and mission and vulnerability in my life, <laughs> which leads to just greater success and closeness to the people around you. It's hard to say like how much, like where I would really be in the long term, if that makes sense. But I think anything that I would have done would have been more enjoyable and therefore also more successful. How about you? So for me, similarly to you, I think it helps to have been in situations where these principles would have been helpful. So 20 years ago when I was like 11 years old, wouldn't have made much sense. But I would say that the two first principles of the book, which are people really want to be safe. If people feel safe, they'll be way more effective and more likely to do good things and allow yourself to be vulnerable. These two principles are things that I don't often do or keep in mind when I'm in social situations. Like I'm the kind of person, and I've said this before, when I'm in groups of people, I just want to sound smart and witty, you know, and I'm like making jokes. And so knowing this book, if I would keep in my mind every time I'm in a social environment, that in the end, people just want to feel safe. And the best way for people to trust you is to allow yourself to be vulnerable. If I could start doing that consistently, or if I had started doing that consistently, all my social interactions would have gone so much better and so much easier. On the subject of like raising the bar, it changes the way the bar is set on like what it is to be a good person. And if you make it so it's easier for other people to be good, as in we're all the hero of our own story. If you change the goalpost and they feel like they can also be like a good person, they like being around people that make them feel like they are a good person rather than you just trying to make yourself look good. 
I think that's very important. And then also things like discussions, whether it's like on a team basis or like a one-to-one around like sometimes people want to complain about things and then it's like a natural tendency to then just come in with solutions and um, they maybe just want to like be heard and are trying to find a way to be vulnerable and be listened to. And then you're instead just coming and be like, oh, well, you're doing it wrong. You should do it this way. It makes them not feel vulnerable and like they're doing, making mistakes. And then they can kind of snap back at you when you're trying to be helpful, but it's actually very natural when you think about it. But if you can like slowly just listen to them and help them open up, they'll then take the step of vulnerability, be like, how would you do this? Or like, what could I do? And then you can kind of offer your solutions and actually be much more productive conversation where you connect in a nice way as opposed to, um, annoying each other. So also a handy thing. It's a good take. Yes. 100%. Cool. Uh, okay. Then discussion number two. What business would you start based on the principles of this book? So something we haven't touched on yet is um, the fact that a book says you can't build an effective team or effective interpersonal relationships through a screen. And so one of the examples that it gives is that um, like when Disney and Pixar merged, Disney was in a slump, in a creative slump. And so they really failed making successful movies um, and Pixar was kicking ass and they were doing great stuff. And so the Disney leadership asked the Pixar leadership to help out with, you know, the Disney creative slump. They weren't going to like merge the teams, but they wanted help. And one of the things that they did was reorganize the physical offices of Disney where Instead of having like art direction in one floor and then motion design on, on the other floor and then storytelling on, on the third floor, um, like people that were working on the same project were put on the same floor and, you know, social gathering spaces were designed in such a way to maximize human encounters and interactions and stuff like that. And so, you know, today I work remotely. So I see my teammates, um, at the most four times a year and like like pretty much two times a year on average. So um yeah, and it's really hard because you, you don't have these, you know, every discussion and conversation you have is time box because you you have a 30-minute calendar slot on the agenda, right? Exactly. And so it's really hard to build like a Navy SEAL type organization in that way. And so I think the business that I would start based on the principles of this book would be a business, um, essentially like a interactive environment where you can you know, have like, let's say 20 people go in and they get like, they get to do like, um, challenges, um, like two by two. So, you know, let's say that you, you get like, you, we're both in, in a group. There's 20 others. Let's say you and I get like, get to do a puzzle together where we have to work together and, and figure out, um, a solution together. And then, you know, that only needs to take five minutes. But during that five minutes, we need to work together. I need to trust you. You're giving me help on, on things that I have to do. And I think you can design specific situations and scenarios where like you artificially force trust, safety, and vulnerability. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, and so you need to combine good game design with psychology and, and you can do something where you know, you do it for an hour and you essentially do maybe, you know, 10 different sessions with different people on your team. And then you do that a couple of times a year um, or maybe once a month or something, an hour with the whole team. And, you know, you, I think designed well, these things, like, I, I think there's a huge opportunity there because like, I would love to do something like that with my team 
just so we're like we're doing different things together and if these different things could be fun and team building at the same time and like specifically one-on-one team building uh that could be super powerful yeah it's really important because it's really easy to miss those things especially if you get to know a few people you sort of start having like your mini your groups within the group kind of thing and yeah and and i trying to force like a lunch each week with a different member of the team i think i think it's not that natural or easy and kind of stuff yeah and so the problem with like big group activities is so i'll give you one example um so as i said i work in a remote environment and we did a christmas party which was which we did in um what's it what's it called is it rep bill rep bill vr or something no it's not that it's it's a different one um vr chat i think it was and it was just like an open space and it was cool it was like this this venue and we were just like hanging around and just chatting. Um, but it was a bit too open and there was not enough instru- like there, there was nothing to do really. It was just, we were there and there was some music on the background and definitely it's, it's harder to also change like levels within the companies and like the interns will go hang out with the interns and stuff. Whereas if you kind of have to meet everyone one on one and just have five minutes sort of on the same level where there's no one as the boss and stuff, it just really changes things. Um, so yeah, I really like this because of like the obvious aren't well. The first thing is like, okay, just build a consulting company that helps people using all the principles of the book and just be like a coach on how to make companies less shit. But like an actual tool or like a thing that actually addresses the problems, I think it's much more, much cool, cooler. I like it. Did you have an an idea or were you going to go to consulting routes? I was going to say not that, but probably I was thinking something a bit more like very similar, but um, physically, uh, like sort of like adventure parks you could go to with your company and do cool stuff um but i quite like the sort of the scalable software version of it with games and things and i do feel like now you've spoken about that that there was a whole game component missing from the book in terms of i mean he talks about like sports things but like he never spoke about any like gaming teams and i feel like there's probably even more examples of like how gaming teams communicate because they will have their headsets on and like they will are talking to each other so i think there's probably even like better examples of the way that those teams like actually lead and like work with each other to to win versus not win because there must be so many transcripts and like so much data behind all the gaming tournaments um that i've never really read about but i feel like must be really interesting it's a really good point because if you look at a game called league of legends um there is like you know you almost have to think like one entity because everything happens so fast um and yeah it's it's really impressive and yeah you're right i think um Either, well, yes, there, there could be things learned from, from how these, these teams work together and how they build this. And so this is interesting, right? Um, in a game like League of Legends, which is this top down, like it's, it's, it's called a mobile, like a multiplayer online battle arena, um, where it's like five characters versus five characters. And so five people versus five people and you're controlling your character and you have to beat the other one. And, um, in like historically, Eastern, teams have always been better than western teams um because it seems like um so in both real-time strategy games real-time strategy games are games like starcraft or age of empires where again you're like top down and you have to like you're controlling things from top down um so historically uh eastern teams or individuals players have been better at those versus first person shooters and these types of games so first person shooter is where you're looking through the eyes of the person that you're controlling and you usually like you have a gun, right? One example would be, um, uh, Call of Duty or Counter-Strike 
a third, like you also have a, a shooter like Fortnite, which is a third person shooter. And so, um, historically the West has been better at shooters and the East has been better at these more strategy games that are more top down. And I wonder if this has, and I think it probably has something to do with culture, um, how they're more like, um, people are group oriented and we're more in the West, we're more individualistic. Um, so yeah, anyway, to your points, I think there's a lot to be learned about how these, uh, these teams work together. Um, because there's, I think, going to be a significant difference between shooters and, because you also have team-based shooters like Counter-Strike, which is 5v5, or like team-based strategy games like, um, uh, like uh, League of Legends. Yeah, that's really cool. I feel like there's a interesting book or like, Thesis to be written on, like <laughs> I think, I think it was written somewhere, or at least someone made a YouTube video about it. But I think there's there's some research. I, I think there was some research done there. Mm, I wonder what like the sales are like on like GTA versus like the team games across like USA versus China and stuff as well. Yeah, that's a good question. I I don't know. Mm. Cool. Uh, okay, number three. Who would this be an ideal gift for, and why? Because uh, I think as we both said. I think a lot of lessons would have like just glanced off me if I tried to read it when I was like 20 or something, even. Um, and so getting someone like at the, the point where it's most impactful for them, I guess maybe like 25, it depends on where they are at in their life. They've, they've been running a business. If, if you've been like one year into running a business, I think it's probably fine. Or whether you're running a business or just in a team as well. If you want to become a manager and like work better with others, it's, it's good. So. Just early into your career, I guess. For me, I know already a handful of people that I've worked with that I would like, that I would want to read this book. Um, and, and they're all in, in leadership positions. And so I think it's, it's probably more relevant for leaders to read than it is for people who aspire to lead. Although I'm, I'm sure it's actually also very beneficial if you aspire to be a leader. Definitely if you aspire, but also if you're in an organization and you're wondering what the opportunity is going to be like to do something meaningful or impactful, and you're like, okay, actually, you just start to notice that the culture is bad and it's not set up for doing effective work versus if you're going to go to a different company, you can like actually kind of see these signs kind of early on by like, okay, do the people feel like they trust each other and that stuff and you sort of just hear your friends talking about their jobs and how they work and like what you're looking for. Um, I think it's kind of useful and just gives you a lot more awareness on that sort of stuff because um, these really big decisions in your life can be quite hard and just having more understanding of what you should be putting into those decisions I think is really useful in terms of like how to get lucky and have the most successful life. Um, anything that can help you spot luck is is good. Yes, yeah, I agree. Although, I mean, I think I've been in situations where I had so little impact on how the organization was ran that it would have been just really hard for me to have an impact by having read this book. So that, that's, I guess, why I'm, I'm, I like, I would say it's, I, I prefer to give it to people who are actually leading. But then again, yeah, um, not everyone is, is open to these things, right? So you have people that are different le- leadership styles. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I guess what I was more saying was like the realizing that you're not going to be able to change the culture and going to a, and spotting a good culture and going to it. So basically what we're saying is someone that, that works with with teams, <laughs> if they're a manager, even more so, 
But if not, if they like self-improvement and thinking about their career seriously, then they should also probably read it. And honestly, I think this could probably be a good thing for, honestly, like relationships too. One-on-one relationship, but even more like a family. Um, I, I think one of the reasons I struggle with vul- being vul- allowing myself to be vulnerable is because like, I didn't really get it as an example. Like my, my dad, for example, he's similar to I am and like naturally we just don't really do that. So I like, I think I'm going to take that away and, and try to admit mistakes more readily or like, like too readily almost towards my, my kids just to instill that feeling of you're safe here and you can be vulnerable here and we'll grow together. Mm, cool. It's exciting. Yeah. Nice. Well, um, that's it, right? I look forward to, uh, <laughs> berating you on that for the rest of your life. <laughs> Good. It's going to be great. Okay. Any, any ratings? Yeah. I think, um, this is a, is a really, really good book. I think it's, um, you know, we're social animals. And so I think there's actually not a lot of people who wouldn't benefit from reading this, um, and putting them into practice. I think that the, the lessons of, you know, safety and this vulnerability that the two ones that I, like, I, I've literally written them down in, 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 in my, my, my journal. At the front page, I don't read it often enough, but I put it there. Um, and I, it's something I, I try to remind myself to do. So, um, I would say putting a number on it, I'm going to give it a nine, which is high praise. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, I was going to say a seven up front. And since having this discussion, I'm suddenly, I am feeling more of like an eight. I guess I just have, when I first read it, like not so much of it went in. I think I'd read it quite a lot of books on the general concept of um psychology teamwork safety and so like some of the examples just felt very similar <laughs> to, to stuff and like also one of the examples i gave was from a different book because of i felt it made the point i wanted to make for example and then i feel like i've read quite a lot of plain transcripts and had a lesson from them in in one form or other to do with psychology so it was just like another example of that and um it was still a really good book and had important messages. And so maybe I'm being a bit biased. But anyway, I'll stick with my rating. Seven. Good. All right. Good discussion. So as our next book, we're going a bit weird. Is that is that a good term? Yeah, let's, let's say that. Let's fully embrace that we are not that comfortable about reading this book, but that's kind of the point of yeah. reading it. Uh, we are reading False Alarm by... Bjorn Lomborg. Thanks. Um, and it is supposed to be a scientific analysis of why climate change isn't really happening and we should all stop worrying about our lives. Um, and a lot of climate skeptics love it. And obviously we're trying to be not biased about it, but I'm expecting to hate everything in it and be tearing it apart scientifically. But you never know. I'm open. Um, I'm ready. Exactly. Good. So looking forward to yes. that. All right. Um, so yeah, until next time. And if you, if you like the episode, feel free to give us a like and subscribe to the show. And if you want to let us know, Sam, what, what's the email to reach you at? If people want to tell you how inspiring your anecdotes were. Uh, they can find us on wiserpod.com. Otherwise, I'm not sure. It's LinkedIn. I mean, Sam I'm, Harris. Yeah. Link, LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at Nico Vrieke. Find me there. Cool. All right. To everyone. Thank you. Yep. Stay curious. And. Bye. Ciao.